Thanks for calling Toyota. This is Jan. I just adopted a new best friend, and I'm looking for a Toyota so we can make the most out of summer. With a new RAV4, you can take your pup for a drive up the coast. You can take a Prius to the park. Or you can take a Tundra to kayak at a remote lake. One problem, Jan. Oh? My new best friend's a cat. Your summer starts here, but it all ends June 3rd. Toyota, let's go places. Dealer inventory may vary, so your participating Toyota dealer for details. Visit your Front Range Toyota stores today. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, it's Allie and Lindsay here, and we want to talk to you about our new favorite wine subscription. It is Winester. The best thing about Winester is that they work with small wineries. You know BSN loves supporting small local businesses, and Winester is just that, supporting real people making real wine. These guys will curate a hand-picked shipment for you from the best small wine producers in the U.S. So my favorite part about Winester is the fact that I don't really know much about wine, and when I go to a liquor store, I tend to gravitate towards the same wine I've always had instead of trying something new. But with Winester, they make the process so easy. That's exactly right, Allie. And from my perspective, you guys, I love wine and have tried so many different types of wine at different price points. And Winester is not only easy, but it is quite literally some of the best wine I've ever tasted, and it makes for an amazing gift. What's also ideal about Winester is that you can pick your shipments based on your schedule. That's right, Allie. So whether you're a casual drinker or you love hosting parties, you can get your shipment based on your lifestyle. So head to their website today, you guys. That's W-I-N-E-S-T-Y-R, Winester.com. We've got BSN25 promo code for you, and you can save $25 off your first order. Running the option on first down. Hagan has it. He has McKinley Wright What's up, everybody? Welcome into the BSN Buffs podcast presented by Total Beverage. I'm your host, Henry Chisholm. Before we start talking football, I want to tell you about this really awesome deal for BSN listeners. If you didn't know by now, Total Beverage is delivering beer, wine, and liquor to anywhere in the North Metro area from Wheat Ridge to Erie. For a limited time, Total Bev is offering 20% off your purchase on their website and their app. Use code BSN20 to save 20% and have it delivered to your door. Let's jump into the show. All right, guys, it's Tuesday. That means we're two days away from the start of camp. It's also exactly one month until the Rocky Mountain Showdown, the first time we're actually going to see the Buffs on the field in a meaningful football game. I'm so excited. I know I say this every time, but I am really excited for football season to get started come up with some awesome content for you guys and let you guys know what's happening behind the scenes in Boulder. Today, I want to start the show by talking about the possibility of morning football games in the Pac-12. I think this is a really interesting subject. I've gone back and forth repeatedly about whether I think that the Pac-12 should consider the 9 a.m. Pacific time starts. Right now, I, I think that it's worth a try. I want to start by talking about how terrible it'd be for me. So 9 a.m. Pacific time starts. Luckily, that means in the mountain time zone, their 10 a.m. starts. Usually, my pregame routine, and I don't know exactly what it'll be here in Boulder, but up in Missoula, it was to get on campus about three hours before kickoff. That meant an hour to wander around tailgates, talk to players, parents, 
talk to Buffs fans, talk to whoever you want to talk to for an hour, then head into the stadium, look through the media guides and all the pregame reading materials they give you, uh, just to make sure that I have a good handle on everything that's going on. Obviously, with the podcast every day, I'll be in pretty good shape knowing what's going on with both teams, but it never hurts to go through the media guide and find some fun stats, some trends that you might have missed, uh, that kind of stuff. And so I usually like to spend like an hour looking through that stuff, getting my computer set up, finding my spot, and then spend another hour on the field before the game just watching warm-ups, making sure everybody's out there, making sure everybody looks sharp. Uh, Sometimes you can catch something there that's interesting. Sometimes they'll be working a new running back in early, uh, and that's something that you want to know before they just show up on the field during the game. So that's usually uh, my pregame routine, or at least it has been in Missoula. Get to the field about three hours before the game. 10 a.m. start, that means I'm there at 7. It's probably a 45-minute drive from Denver to Boulder. That means I'm out the door here at 6.15. That means that I have all of my stuff packed up. I've, you know, showered, gotten my nice clothes on, all that sort of stuff. Probably looking at waking up around 5, 5.15, uh on a Saturday morning, and what's better than that? So I just want to throw that part out there because most of the most of the time that I've spent thinking about this, I've thought about how terrible it'd be for me. I'm trying to work through that and think about what's best for the Pac-12. And to be honest, these late starts aren't good either. You know, when a game's starting at 7.30, that means it's not ending until optimistically 10.30. And then you have the shooting post-game videos, writing a game recap, going to the uh, press conference and all that stuff's going to keep you at the stadium until one at the earliest. And then you got to drive back. So it's not like that's a great option for me either. What's nice is just those afternoon games. That might be a stretch, but now that we've kind of gone through my biases, uh, I want to kind of talk about what it would mean for the PAC 12. And like I said, I think it's worth giving it a try. And That's kind of a new feeling for me. Most of the time I've spent thinking about this, I've just thought that it's a little gimmicky, that you don't benefit anything from it. Uh, Mike Leach went on a bit of a rant uh, talking about the potential 9 a.m. starts for the Pac-12 in the Pacific time zone where he would play. And he says that if the game's going to start at 9 he's probably in the building at 4.30 in the morning. That's pretty wild. Uh, Especially when you think he's not going to be the only one. These are students who will be waking up at 4.30 to get ready to go play a football game because you have all the training. You have, I mean, you have to be sharp at nine. Uh, You think back to the game a couple years ago when Stanford played Northwestern on the East Coast, uh, noon their time, nine on the Pacific coast where Stanford was used to and Stanford was the better team and Stanford really should have given it a run, but they got down early and looked sluggish because their bodies just weren't used to playing football at that time. And you know, a a lot of the time in these conversations, people have brought up that most of these teams have morning practice anyway. They're used to playing football at nine, but a 9 a.m. practice is a lot different than a 9 a.m. game. Because for a 9 a.m. game, I mean, you're getting taped up. You're having pregame meals to make sure that your body is in the exact shape you want. Maybe some guys go through like a pregame lift to get their muscles warmed up. I mean, you have to be at your very, very peak. And as much as we'd like to think that guys are at the peak uh, for their practices, the truth is they are not spending three, four hours getting ready for practice like they are a game. And that's fair because it would be absurd for them to spend that much time every single day just trying to get their bodies in prime shape for those three hours. Um, So it's it's an interesting concept. And the, the reason they do it, of course, is so that they could get more eyes on their product. 
on the East Coast, people aren't staying up to watch the end of a 7.30 Mountain Time start. Because, like I said, optimistically, that game ends at 10.30. Realistically, it might be 11.30. But saying it ends at 10.30, that means it's ending after midnight on the East Coast. If it's 7.30 Pacific Time, it's well after midnight. And that's assuming that it's a game that has a pretty decent pace to it. That's not good for a bunch of reasons. You want eyes on your product. When it comes to awards voting, a bunch of the East Coast awards voters aren't spending much time watching the Pac-12, or as much as they could be if those games were on at a more optimal time for them. Uh, same, same with the voting for a college football playoff. Uh, recruits want to be on TV when they play college football. So playing in a conference where nobody's going to watch them or significantly fewer people are going to watch them, that hurts you recruiting-wise. There are a bunch of flaws. And something needs to be done. I don't think that 9 a.m. starts are the answer, but I'm all right with them trying a few just to see if it works. Because it might. You, you miss out on a bunch of stuff. Imagine, let's, let's just keep saying that the game starts at 9 a.m., even though in Boulder they'd be 10 a.m. starts. But obviously you miss out on the tailgating. People aren't going to be showing up to tail, or at least not as many people are going to be showing up at 6 a.m. to get three hours of tailgating in. Maybe fewer people go to the game because, you know, to get anywhere in L.A., it's an hour, 90-minute drive. And that means leaving at 7.30 to get there just in time for kickoff at, you know, USC, or UCLA, all those schools. So I, I would expect there to be a drop in attendance. Maybe one of the schools figures out how to market it. Maybe one of them says like, hey, we're doing all this stuff. Everybody wake up or students, let's get this going at 4 a.m. We're going to have a DJ set up, whatever, something like that. So they kind of turn it into a cool thing or like, come, come here, watch the sunrise before we catch the game. You know, something like that. Somewhere where they're able to market it and brand it and turn it into a cool thing instead of just an inconvenience would help. Pac-12 isn't selling a bunch of tickets right now anyway. There's, I mean, about a quarter of these stadiums are not full. It, it, on any given Saturday. And that's probably a problem that needs to be dealt with in a different way, but we don't need to dig into that now. I, I don't like the argument, well, it's bad, so let's just make it worse. But things aren't working, so maybe one of these schools, when they get the opportunity to market this, can actually drum up some support, and then next year more teams can do what they did or learn from what the successful schools did and learn from what the unsuccessful schools did and figure something out. So 9 a.m. starts would mean that they're about the only games on TV. That, that'd be, I mean, oh, what? A noon start on the East Coast, ACC schools, some SEC schools. So yeah, there'll, there'll be a couple other games, but... It means a lot more eyes than if they were to start in the afternoon, which is obviously what I would push for just because it fits my schedule well. It just makes sense. People here want to watch a game at 3 o'clock. Uh, it means you have time to tailgate before. It means you have time to go back home before you go out for the night or whatever you do. It means that the games are showing up at 6 p.m. on the East Coast, which is a pretty solid time. But there is competition because that's one of those prime football slots. And so if they do go to the 9 a.m. starts, they really don't have as much competition. It'll get a lot more eyes on their product. And a point, I read an article in the Mercury News out of California that had a few good points. And honestly, they kind of changed my opinion and made me not, not in favor of a 9 a.m. start, but in favor of just trying it to see what happens. Uh, one of them is uh, that the 9 a.m. start is bad for teams in the morning because they do have to get up so early and get ready. But 
it is great for the traveling team because, you know, I talked about how much work I have to do after a game, but those teams have to fly home. And if it's a game that starts at 7.30, you're not booking a flight that's going to get you out of there at 10.30. You're booking a flight that's going to leave at 1 a.m. to make sure you're going to make it. And then you think, uh, maybe it's even later than that. Now that I say it, but then you have to think a couple hours in the air, and then you have to get back, and then there's the buses, and they have to figure out all the bags, and getting back to their dorms or their houses or wherever they live. And by the time these guys are going to bed, it's probably 5 a.m., and that even might be optimistic with school on Monday. So the 9 a.m. start really doesn't sound good for the players, but the late starts don't sound good either. Balances out just a little bit, and I thought that that was a really great point. Another one that they brought up is that by playing some of the games early in the morning, that means the highlights from those games are going to be on TV all day. So when you sit down to watch the next football game, whatever that is, at halftime, they're going to say, and check out what happened when Colorado played uh, UCLA. Here's a 30-second clip. And that stuff is good. It, it, it's another way to get eyes on your product, not just from the people who are watching initially live, but throughout the day, people who are watching college football will, even if they don't see those highlights, they'll at least hear the scores. Somebody will bring up the scores, you know, and that means that on the day when people are really interested, most interested in hearing about college football, watching college football, there are more Pac-12 names being brought up. Um, the, the next one they brought up is one of the things I was talking about is, you know, just the novelty of these early games. Which, I mean, you, you get that as a big bonus. There is the novelty saying, hey, everybody show up. We're going to do something crazy because we can. We, it's, it's a weird thing. Let's celebrate it. But at best, you're hoping that that counteracts all the people who aren't willing to make the drive out to a football stadium to catch a 9 a.m. start. And really, that's, that's what you're hoping for, is just for it to be a wash. And after a while, the novelty probably wears off, too. And that's where having too many of these games would really be counterproductive. At least that'd be my assumption. Maybe you throw in, I mean, most teams get one at home this year just so that you can see how it works, who's able to make it successful, and who shows up to an empty stadium. A uh, couple like Oregon, for example, everybody's driving there from Portland. That's a two hour drive, which means they're leaving at seven to get there at kickoff. Then you have to factor, factor in time to park. Then you have to factor in time to wait in line to get to the stadium. Then you have to factor in all the pregame festivities. I don't know what they do pregame at Oregon, but you know, maybe they have skydivers or the band is out there playing the national anthem. You want to see them run through the tunnel. A lot of fans, if they're making a two-hour drive, want to catch warm-ups. I mean, that's easy to see how that becomes something where these people are leaving before 6 in the morning to go watch a football game. And for Oregon, not having their schedule in front of me, even in Pac-12 play, I'd guess that a third of their games are games that you feel pretty comfortable that they're going to win. I could tell you that if people have to drive... Uh, you know, two hours, leave at 6 a.m. to go watch Oregon play Montana, my alma mater, which they do this season. I mean, I, I am not a, assuming many people are going to make that trip. So it's, when you boil it all down, it's just a bad situation for the Pac-12. It's a situation they've put themselves in through these bad media deals, through throwing all their games on at night when the East Coast can't watch, and the way all these decisions have kind of spiraled and worked together to put the Pac-12 in this horrible situation where they need to try a gimmick to see if they can get people to actually pay attention to their product, which just a few years ago was one of the best in the country. And I think that now that you are in this situation, that's what you got to do. You got to say, you know what? 
I know that this is pretty terrible for our student athletes and our coaches. They're not going to be happy that we're asking them to wake up at 4.30 or 5 or whenever it is and so that they can be totally locked in by 9 a.m. to play football. But on the other hand, they're not having to fly back late at night. They're going to be home in time for dinner. So let's see if we can turn this into something good. You know, Pac-12 after dark really hasn't worked. Maybe Pac-12 before dawn will. Probably not. I'm all right with them trying it out. But still, I think most of these games have to be on just during the afternoon, which seems like the obvious answer until you look at all the other games that they're competing with at that time. And you just wish that the Pac-12, their product, the football games that they're trying to market in those afternoon slots would be the games that people from around the country would want to tune in to so that some mid-level Pac-12 matchup is the same as some mid-level SEC matchup. And you wouldn't just assume that the SEC game is going to get more eyes. And that's what they're building to. But until then, I really think that trying it out can't go wrong. Or if it does, then you just change it and hope that it isn't too embarrassing. A couple more thoughts about the Pac-12 before we move on. This whole Pac-12 football is bad narrative could change really quickly. Obviously, there are factors in play that make it unlikely. They don't. The schools don't get as much money from the conference because of the media deals. Uh, the they because of that they don't have the same players. They don't have the same facilities to attract the players, and so there is a little bit of a talent gap. Still, some pretty young coaches. Half the programs have a coach in his first or second year. There's the nine-game conference schedule where you're asking these teams to hand each other losses. I mean, there are a bunch of things working against the Pac-12 right now, but all it takes is one good season where the Pac-12 is beating teams from other conferences, and the whole narrative can be flipped around. And I know that we've been pretty gloomy on this podcast talking about the Pac-12, But, I mean, just imagine, Nebraska's probably going to open the season top 25, which is wild. I'll give that to you. I really like Adrian Martinez. I think he's a great quarterback. Still wild. Um, Colorado beats Nebraska. Boom. That's huge. Oregon plays Auburn. Uh, Stanford plays UCF and Notre Dame. Washington State plays Houston. Uh, Arizona State plays Michigan State. UCLA plays Oklahoma. Arizona plays Texas Tech. All of these games, if the Pac-12 can... I mean, if they sweep them, then all of a sudden the narrative is just totally flipped. And at the end of the season, we're looking at a a Pac-12 team in the college football playoff, even if they do have a couple conference losses, just because they were the Pac-12 has showed that they're so strong again. But even if they can just, you know, split those games... uh, win the majority of them, the whole narrative gets flipped on its head. All of a sudden, the Pac-12 is just as competitive as any other conference. And we're talking about these young programs with new coaches as potential dynasties going forward. And so things are gloomy. The Pac-12 is in a situation where they need to try gimmicky stuff like 9 a.m. kickoffs. But if things break the Pac-12's way early in the season, I mean, a month and a half, two months from now, we could be saying totally different things about the conference. And that's something that we all really have to be hoping for. It's time to take a second now and acknowledge Breckenridge Brewery, the official beer of BSN Denver. Breckenridge is the original Colorado beer established in 1990 in Breckenridge, Colorado. You've probably heard of their delicious vanilla porter, their oatmeal stout, and most people's personal favorite, the world famous Avalanche, which is their classic American amber ale. But they just released a new beer called Strawberry Sky that you guys are going to love. For you beer enthusiasts out there, they're calling this a lighthearted Kolsch ale. But for those of you who have no idea what that means, this is that light, delicious summer beer that you've been looking for. So look for Strawberry Sky at your local liquor store or any other Breckenridge beer. And make sure you also look out for the Breckenridge events calendar on bsndenver.com. You'll be able to see all of the events we have planned and we'll be drinking Breck beers at all of them, so RSVP and have a good time with us. 
Moving along now into the second segment where we're going to start talking about some of your questions. Um, again, if you want to drop questions to me to be answered on the podcast, or even if they aren't questions, you just have your own ideas, you think the 9 a.m. starts stupid, you love it, whatever it is, uh, go to today's post on bsndenver.com and leave a comment on this post for the podcast and I will read it on the next show. Uh, subscribers uh, are have the exclusive right to leave comments and have them on the show. Sometimes, like yesterday, I will uh, ask her some questions so that we'll have a couple loaded up for some light days on the website, but there's no guarantee I can get to all those. If you want me to talk about it, get on the website. Um, but yeah, let's jump into it. Uh, first one comes in from SK. Can we expect to see KD get more time in the slot? His size and skills set seem to be mishandled on the outside. I would love to see him in the slot. Let's start there. There are a bunch of questions about this offense, especially after last year where they ran an offense that really wasn't successful. And we talked about that a little bit before, but a lot of the passes were behind the line of scrimmage. Um, a lot of them that weren't were within three yards of the line of scrimmage, and a lot of the others were just bombs downfield. They had some other stuff. I mean, they let LaVisca use his size on some comeback routes, let him just box out the corner. But uh, I want to see more of those mid-range routes. I know in the film room we kind of talked about that just a little bit, the LaVisca Chenault film room, specifically those routes that they had him running either right at the line of scrimmage, going deep, or those comebacks were the common ones. But it's using those traditional patterns that are designed to get guys open that I would love to see. And it makes you wonder why they didn't do that more. It's easy to tell a quarterback, snap the ball, look to your left, two of the receivers will be blocking, the other one will be staring you in the eye. Throw the ball to that one. It's easy to say, snap the ball, drop back five steps, look to the right. LaVisca is going to be running up the sideline. He'll be the one in the same color jersey as you. Just throw it up high, let him go get it 30, 40 yards downfield. It's a lot tougher to say, here's a stick pattern. You have two wide receivers split out right. You have your tight end also on the right side. Tight end's going to run uh, an eight-yard out. Slot receiver's going to run an eight-yard out. Outside receiver's going to run up the sideline. The idea is you're going to pull the, that zone coverage over on that side. First, the, the deep guy's going to take the corner deep, and then those other two guys are going to fill in. They aren't going to have the defenders extended wide enough to cover both. Figure out which one of those guys is open by basing your read off of this slot cornerback or whether the linebacker is able to get out there. You know, those are where it starts to get more complicated. And that's where good offenses can become great offense. I mean, I know it's different in college football. These one-read RPO option-type stuff has been working for good football teams and it's been working for a while. I still really like the pro-style offense where you just have a smart quarterback, a Peyton Manning-type quarterback, and you just run the patterns that are built. You, you read cover two, and so you run a flood to that side. Just stretch this, like have the deep guy send, or send the safety deep. You have the corner uh, on the outside pick between the tight end run to the flat or the guy who's running a 10-yard out behind him. Then you just read that. It's all this kind of stuff that turns the game into a chess game instead of a game of athleticism. And that's what the game is when you just throw the ball to LaVisca at the line of scrimmage and say, you have two blockers, there are three guys, get as much as you can. You can give yourself advantages when you run these offenses that are more designed to, to let you take advantage of what the defense shows you. The, there are a couple reasons you wouldn't do that. One is that you have a guy like LaVisca and a guy like Katie Nixon who can take advantage of 
slower defenders in space. It could also be that the Buffs weren't confident in Steven Montez's ability to read a defense and make good decisions. That's where it gets concerning. You'd hope, like I said before, that he's taken the step and he's ready to think the game instead of just play the game to understand why a play call works and where the tension points are, whether it's going to be a slot cornerback who's going to have to make a decision to go to this guy or this guy, and you throw it to the other one. You know, it's this kind of stuff that makes the game so much easier if you understand how to do it. And if you're going to put KD in the slot where I'd really like to see him, you need to be running these intermediate routes where he's he's breaking 10 yards downfield, which is something, again, like I've said, we didn't see much. They're all short routes. They're all deep routes. There isn't much in between. I think that KD could be great at it. It'll be interesting because he is a similar size and a similar skill set to Dimitri Stanley. Uh, talking to Nate Landman, Nate really wanted to emphasize that Dimitri Stanley is smooth, getting in and out of breaks. Uh, he can separate from defenders. He profiles a little more as a traditional slot receiver than KD does. I think that both could really shine there. Again, KD Nixon reminds me a lot of Emmanuel Sanders of the Broncos, who I've spent a lot of time watching and writing about and talking about. I think, I think KD can be a really good outside receiver. I think that they should throw him in the slot at times to let him take advantage of how clean his footwork is in there, too. But it doesn't really matter if you're t- t- like actually a sl- playing in the slot or playing outside when you're running a fly or a drag route every single time, you know? And that's where, before I want to say I want more of KD in the slot... Um, or more of Dimitri Stanley in the slot, or even more of LaVisca in the slot. Maybe he's a guy who, he's just so big that having a target like that, he kind of plays almost like a tight end role, where he's just a big guy who you can throw in the middle of the field and have a target, an easy target for uh, Montez. Before I know how I want all these guys to be used, though, I want to see what that actually looks like. And hopefully... The Buffs can run more of that kind of stuff this year. It sounds like they're going to be running the pistol. It's interesting. There are a couple of ways you can go about, you know, building an offense around it. Until I see it on the field, though, I'm not really sure where I want everybody to line up. I just know that I want them to be throwing the ball, uh, using their brains to make things easier instead of just relying totally on physical skill. All right, moving on to the next question, which comes in from David Smith, who asks, I'm wondering if Dante Spiraco has a chance to play this year, and if so, as outside linebacker or defensive end. He got quite a bit of time as a true freshman, but then transferred, and now is back as a walk-on. So, in all my prep work, uh, getting ready to talk buffs every day, I mostly focused on this season, the 2019 season, 2018 season. And so, in 2017... When Sparaco was getting a lot of playing time as a true freshman, I really hadn't looked into. And so I pulled up Phil Steele to see what he said about the Buffs defensive line in 2017. And he has one sentence. In 2017, the Buffs lost all three starters with the rush D allowing 208 yards per game, 5.2 yards per carry, and just 19 sacks. Which is kind of what I expected to hear. That with a true freshman playing... Uh, who then transferred out that it wasn't a strong group. Uh, Those are not good stats. I think this year, even though there is some inexperience, these are talented guys who are going to get on the field, and I think that we're going to be really happy. I mean, Jalen Sammy, obviously Mustafa Johnson, and Terrence Lang will be out there. Dante Sparacco actually can't play this season because of transfer rules. He'll be back in 2020, And he'll have what? I think he'll have two years of eligibility left, 2020 and 2021. I mean, there will be a hole to fill with Mustafa Johnson gone, and maybe he's the guy to do that. He has an interesting background. Played at Cherry Creek, but then spent his senior year 
at the IMG Academy in Florida, which produces a lot of talent. Um, I mean, was he? They they had a twelve and zero record and was they were number two in uh, the country, and he was on that team. That's a great sign. Played a season at Colorado as a freshman. Obviously, just seeing the field as a true freshman uh, is a great look. It means that you're a good player. Wasn't a strong group. Leaves for Montana State, actually. Uh, Gets some playing time there, not a lot. And then walked on, like you said, at Colorado. He's not going to be on the field this year because of the rules. Maybe when he comes back, though, there will be room for him in the rotation who knows? Let's move on to the next question, which comes in from Silverbuff. What does it take for Montez to see the bench, and who, Neuer or Little, takes his place? That's a question that I really hadn't thought about. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the best case scenario for CU, what this football team could accomplish if everything breaks its way. To see Montez get benched, though, I mean, it starts with him not being able to read a defense, not being able to understand how to um, control a more complex offense, which could be what this new coaching staff installs. Everything that I've heard from Mel Tucker makes me think that this isn't a team that's going to sacrifice a couple of wins at the end of the season because they are out of bowl contention if they're put in that situation. I think that they're going to be trying to win every game with the best players possible for as long as they can. I also think that that means the one thing that could really knock Montez out is if the coaching staff tries to implement a complex offense, and he can't run it. I think that if if it's all still just one-read stuff, then, yeah, you leave Montez in for most of the year because he has the arm talent, all that kind of stuff, that he's not going to be making bad decisions in simple situations. Because he's a senior quarterback, and this is the stuff that he has been running. Now, if they do say, we want to run more of these complex looks, complex patterns, and make you make some reads, and he doesn't live up to it, and they're losing because of that, then yeah, that's where you see Sam Neuer come in, Ty Little. I actually think that Blake Stenstrom will get a real chance to be the next guy up. Following spring camp, the Buffs released a depth chart, and it had Steven Montez first. Tyler Lytle's second, and Sam Neuer as the third string. Neuer played really well in the spring game. Lytle played pretty well throughout all of camp. Um, Neuer's a junior. Lytle's a sophomore. Uh, But Blake Stenstrom from Valerie Christian could be a guy who beats them both out. He didn't get to play this spring. He's a red shirt freshman, and he's probably just as talented as either of those two guys. I really don't know who's going to get the shot if Montez is pulled. I do think that if he gets pulled, though, it's late in the season. And in that case, it'd be easy, at least in my mind, to say, let's throw the redshirt freshman out there because he has the most upside. If we put him out there and he looks good, then we have our guy for the next three seasons, just like we were able to do with... uh, Montez and with Sefa Lufau as well. They have a history of letting guys be their quarterback for a while. That said, I mean, the depth chart would point at Tyler Lytle. He has the leg up at this point, but you really just have to watch camp and see who is able to pull away from the other two. The Green Solution has 17 Colorado locations and an express checkout to get you in and out as fast as possible. Get on your phone right now. Go to their website, mygreensolution.com, to order your flour, concentrates, edibles, and topicals online, and then head to the closest green solution for pickup. Use code BSN20 for 20% off your entire purchase. 
What's up guys, Ryan Konigsberg here, and I gotta tell you about the Blake Street Tavern. It's my favorite sports bar in town, as evidenced by the fact that we had our fantasy draft there. It's where I watched Super Bowl 48. It's where I watched CU win a Pac-12 basketball championship back in the day. Uh, it's the place to be for any sporting event. It's the biggest bar in town. I always joke you could land a 747 in there. It was named the National Sports Bar of the Year in 2017 by Nightclub and Bar Magazine. It wins Best Sports Bar in Denver seemingly every year from Westward, anyone else that's voting. It's the place to be. Uh, they've got great specials and the food is out of this world. I recommend the nachos, the green chili fries, uh, the buffalo chicken wrap, you name it, they've got it. And the location is perfect. Just two blocks north of Coors Field and they have parking. So go check out the Blake Street Tavern. All right, moving along now, we're going to answer just a few more questions before we call it a day. Tomorrow, I will be having uh, my guy Andre Simone on the podcast to talk some buffs. I think Ryan Konigsberg is going to be on Thursday's show, so look out for that stuff. We got a lot of fun things coming your way. Of course, Thursday is also the first day at camp. Saturday is Buffs Media Day and an open practice. I'll be out in Boulder with Ali Monroy uh, we'll be making some videos. We'll be talking to some of the guys. We just finished up our interview request list. So I've been planning some awesome content for you guys, and I'm excited for you all to see it. But we're still here on Tuesday, so let's finish up this podcast. What's the advantages and disadvantage of the Buff Stadium? Like, does it snow a lot? Is crowd noise a major factor, etc.? This one is from Nicholas Geyer, who I actually got to meet at the... Uh, BSN Bar Crawl. He's an awesome guy. We had some great talks with uh, Andre, who'll be on the pod, Drew Creaseman, a Rockies guy, and I learned so much more about baseball, which is awesome because baseball is really complicated if you want to actually know what's going on. But back to the question, um, the advantages and disadvantages of the Buff Stadium. So the Buffs actually have a pretty significant home field advantage when you look into the numbers. It's kind of tough to say exactly what that stems from, especially for me, because I've actually never been to a game at Folsom. So I'm, I'm really excited to get up there and actually see what it's about because Ryan and Allie and everybody's been hyping it up to me as some religious experience. I saw a Dead & Company concert there last summer, but that's it. So... Here is my best guess. From an outsider's perspective, Folsom Field is just so unique. Easily one of the most iconic, I think, in college football. Like, obviously, you have the Rose Bowl and you have the Coliseum, like the Big House, all that kind of stuff. But Folsom is different because it isn't as big. It's just the the scene there, the atmosphere that's really iconic, I guess is kind of the word. Like when you get the flat irons up over the stadium and you see the sunset and Ralphie running onto the field before the game, the big Colorado at the back of the end zone. It isn't like a lot of the other stadiums in college football where they're vanilla. They're football stadiums. They're built to fit as many people as they can and give them good views of the field, you know, that kind of stuff. It's it's almost like a cultural aspect, or at least that's kind of what my take is from the outside. And there is this, like, defend Boulder mentality where I don't think that some other schools have that type of feeling toward the place they play because the stadium is just the stadium and not this almost religious venue. Because, I mean, it's so easy. Whenever you see all the, you know, Twitter rankings, people saying, what are the best stadiums? What are the coolest stadiums in the country? Folsom's always up there because it is just one of these iconic old stadiums with these traditions that... As somebody who ha who didn't follow Colorado football closely, I really respected, and I would say that a lot of it comes from that. A lot of the advantage stems from the history and the culture and just the atmosphere. But again, I'll have a better answer to this question once I actually get up there and see what it's like at a football game. 
which is one month from today. Actually, no, that's a home game, but it's in Denver. It'll be a week after that for Nebraska. Getting close, though. Uh, next question, I like the new offensive line coach. How much improvement can we realistically expect on the offensive line in his first year from Go Buffs 3? That's a good question. College football changes so much from year to year. Uh, you have players coming in, players going out. You have coaches switching up jobs all over the place that I really don't think that units can be locked into what they were the year before. I think the Buffs offensive line has a real chance to step forward. They're more experienced, uh, and we've talked about this a little bit. I mean, Colby Purcell started last year. He'll start again probably, and he's just going to be a sophomore. He, he started all 12 games at center last year as a freshman. Like, just bringing him back is huge. They bring in Arlington Hambright, who transfers in as a senior from Oklahoma State. Started half the games at left tackle. Now he's going to be a right tackle here. William Sherman uh, started nine games, was honorable mention Pac-12 last year. It's the left tackle. And he was only a freshman, and he's coming back. So I think that you have reasons to believe that the internal development will pump them up a level. Offensive line coach is kind of the multiplier there. How much they develop depends on him. You know that they're going to progress, but is he the type of guy, and based on the pedigrees, come from a bunch of winning programs like we've talked about, I I could see him having a huge impact. Just understanding the game, understanding offensive line play, how you scheme against good defensive linemen, how when to double, where you try to run the ball, We talk more about how a defensive coordinator can scheme different pieces to get after the quarterback. You know, maybe you throw all six guys up on the line of scrimmage, you send five and have one drop back, have them drop back from some random position on that line and make the offensive line adjust. And you get all these weird scheme creativity things that the defense can use to get after the quarterback because they're so easy to see. That same stuff happens on the offensive line, and a good offensive line coach will have just as many tricks as a good defensive line coach or a good linebackers coach that just aren't as obvious when you're watching the game on TV. You know, it's the idea that maybe your best option is to run the ball right at a defensive lineman and send a double team at him instead of trying to have him single teamed on the backside of a play. And that's one of the things that I really want to get on the ground for in Boulder and talk to these guys, talk to these offensive linemen and say, you know, what is the difference? Is there a difference? And hear what they say, like, you know, he just has us working out a lot more. He has us lifting this stuff. Or if they say, actually, here's this creative technique that he just taught us yesterday that I think is going to be really impactful. And... Just just saying that makes me so excited to actually get up there and be able to talk to all these guys who have the answers to these questions we want to ask. But yeah, I, I do think that an offensive line coach, a new offensive line coach can make a huge impact. I think that the group will be improved just because they are developing. They're bringing in a transfer who should be a good starter in the Pac-12. You know, the offensive lines out here aren't as good as they are uh, in the other Power 5 conferences. There's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. We'll see how it all plays out, I guess. That's going to do it for us today. Uh, Thanks, as always, for riding with me. I know I have a bit of a stuffy nose, so I might be a little bit tough to listen to, but, you know, we're powering through. I think we're going to have Andre tomorrow. We're going to have Ryan on Thursday, I hope, if we can work that out with his schedule. Uh, Allie and I are going to Media Day Saturday. A lot of fun stuff coming your way. Uh... And we're so excited to have you. Buffs football's back. The wait is over. It's time for fall camp. And we're giving you the best deal we've run since we went to a free t-shirt format with subscriptions, but it won't last long. Here's the deal. If you use code SCOBUFFS, that's all one word, all caps, you'll get our annual package for $34.99, which not only is a $10 discount off our current annual package, but it comes out to $2.91 per month, which is almost 50% off our standard monthly price but it's not just about the discount. You're also going to get a free premium Buffs t-shirt, which is a $27 value. 
You get to have your comments read on this podcast. You get all of our exclusive content on bsndenver.com. If you don't like reading, but you want the inside details, subscribers get all of our Buffs written stories in audio form, which means I read my stories to you. And then of course, there's our film reviews, game grades, and just being part of the BSN Buffs community. So go to bsndenver.com or download the app and use promo code SCOBUFFS, all one word, all caps, to join the family today. Thanks again for riding with me. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye, guys. I think they like my Colorado sway. Cause when I'm in it play, I don't really, I don't really know just how to act. And when I'm in it go, you know I'm acting bad. Holly get a bus with my Colorado sway. My Colorado sway. My Colorado sway. I think they like, I think they like my Colorado sway. My Colorado sway. My Colorado sway. Might not sway, I think they like my Colorado sway. My Colorado sway.